My kids were hooked. We were at this public library in small town Kentucky uh, because the sign said, scary stories for children. And I thought, oh yeah, cute little stories about pumpkins and maybe Frankenstein will make an appearance. And this retired school teacher had done this every year and many of my friends who were my age who were her students when they were little, oh, you gotta go, it's the best, your kids will love it. And so yeah, I bring them in there and I think this is gonna be a nice cute time. We're gonna have fun telling cute, scary stories. Isn't this gonna be great? Well, one of these stories, I mean, they were all like this. One of them had to do with a woman who had a generous husband and she was tired of her husband giving away all of their money. And so he walked in the door one day and she pounced on him, murdered him, chopped him into pieces, and then took a shovel and shoveled the bloody bones into a bucket. And this woman is like, acting this whole thing out, sound effects, everything in front of all these elementary age kids. And I mean, you gotta understand, my kids were a little younger then. They were afraid of their mom's hair dryer. They were afraid of dogs. And I'm thinking, they're never gonna sleep again. Like, this is the end of sleep in the cookhouse. We're, we're done for. And so I kind of look up, they're all sitting in the row in front of me and they, all of them, I mean, smiles on their faces, they are dialed in. One of them, for weeks afterward, told the stories word for word over and over again as if she had heard them a hundred times. She's walking around going, but she wanted all of the money and so she chopped him up and chopped him up. And I'm thinking, you're afraid of the vacuum cleaner. Like, what is happening in you right now? Well, I learned that day that something is in my kids and it is in all of us and we don't want to admit that it's there, but when it comes to uh, the undead, when it comes to the dead, when it comes to blood, when it comes to things like that, we may be leery of it, we may understand the darkness that is behind it, but there's something about that stuff that just draws us in. And if we don't show self-control, It'll draw us all the way in. You drive by a car accident that you know is going to have a terrible scene at it, and it's really hard not to take your eyes off the road and look and see what's going on. You see it this time of year when people who have no interest in the things of eternity suddenly become very interested in dark spiritual things, and their yards are decorated with all kinds of stuff that you're thinking, you don't believe any of this stuff is real. Why did you spend $1,000 decorating your yard with this stuff? You see it in the movie theater where horror movies continue to do better and better, uh, where an author like Stephen King used to be considered filth, and now he was considered ahead of his time. Now they're looking back and saying, man, he was one of the first ones doing some of this horror stuff and catching on. Uh, one recent movie that's just terribly dark and takes the, one of the big villains of the Batman saga and makes him <laughs> into the hero has now become the highest grossing R-rated film of all time because we just can't keep our eyes off of this stuff. Uh, what's going on there? Why are we so drawn to things that we are taught don't exist? And why is the world so drawn to things that they insist do not exist? Well, what's going on there is we're taught from day one, really, in our culture to, you know, there's no such thing as this, there's no such thing as that. Most of us walk through our everyday lives as if the things of eternity and the unseen realm are not real. But the thing is, our hearts know better. 
our hearts know that there has to be more to the world than the wood in this pulpit and the pew cushion that you're sitting on and the clothes that you're wearing. There has to be more to the universe than things that you can see and smell and prove through empirical research. Uh, we want to believe that the world is like spiritually sanitized, but our hearts know that it is much more haunted than we make it out to be. And so when there's just a little hint of that kind of stuff around, we are just drawn to it. We can't turn away. We can't let go of it. Well, what we're going to see today in the Bible then is something that many hearts have longed to hear. Uh, it's the truth that there is something more to the world than the things we can see. The unseen realm is real. In fact, there is not just an unseen spiritual realm, but an unseen spiritual war that is going on behind the scenes, a war that takes place on every page of Scripture, and a war that takes place in every day of your life, a war that you even play a part in. In the story we look at today, one family will go through the drama of their lives, and that war will begin <laughs> In them, the battle lines will be drawn and we as the people of God will be equipped to discern what is happening in the spiritual realm around us, what our part in is in it, how to fight the good fight, and finally to hope in the God that will not let his people perish. If you follow Jesus, I pray the Spirit does those things through this text in you today. If you don't follow Jesus... My prayer is that this will be an eye-opening day for you. I pray that as we see one family do their thing and then realize that there is a great age-defining unseen war going on behind the scenes, that you will stop just doing your thing, but instead take eternity seriously and begin to follow Jesus, the only Savior we can look to. Now, before we start today's story, I need to do things a little differently. We need to look back at something we read a few weeks ago because there is one verse in Genesis chapter 3 that grounds and explains everything we are going to read, in fact, much of the Old Testament. So if you've got a pew Bible, turn it to page 2. If not, turn to Genesis 3.15. This verse that we're going to read is crucially important. It explains everything that's going to happen in this story. Uh, now, the backstory here is that a creature called the serpent uh, has convinced the world's first man and the world's first woman to disobey God. This is sort of the first time mankind disobeyed God. Uh, and as a result, the Lord is speaking to this serpent, who we later learn is God's great enemy, Satan, the devil. Uh, and this is what he says to him in verse 315. This is crucial for understanding the whole Old Testament. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. With those words, God declares war. And all of the drama in the Bible adds up to one epic story that fulfills those words. So there is going to be enmity forever between this woman and this serpent, right? And between the descendants, the seed of the woman and the descendants of the serpent. So you have two sides fighting bitterly against each other. That's the eternal war we're talking about, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And we get to see in the very beginning how it's going to end. Whatever, what person ever declares war and gets to declare like how it's going to end with authority from the beginning. But he says, 
that one descendant from the woman will bruise the serpent on the head, in other words, destroy and deliver a mortal wound to the serpent, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So that's how this is going to end. One descendant of Eve is going to come and is going to crush this serpent right in the head, the same way that you might with your heel on the head of a small snake. That is what the Lord is going to do. So these lines are going to form. The seed of the serpent is going to form. But what will it look like? Well, we don't know yet. Uh, The seed of the woman is going to begin to form. What is that going to look like? Well, we don't know yet. Well, now in chapter four, this war story starts to play out. As I said, one family just does their thing. The drama of their lives reveals that this unseen war is going on behind the scenes. So let's move to chapter four now. Today's sermon is based on Genesis chapter four, the story of Cain and Abel. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought forth the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance falling? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told his brother Abel, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city, and he called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now, to Enoch was born Erod, and to Erod became the father of Mahujael. Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And he gave birth to Jabal. He was the father uh, of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. Uh, He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, 
Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. So there is the great war. There it begins to unfold. Uh, What I want to do today is walk you through the whole story, and when it touches on a theme that gives us wisdom for how to fight this fight, we'll uh, talk about it, and that's going to sound like we're talking about this and that, and then this again. Well, that's because that's how stories work. They go back and forth. They teach about a lot of things, but I think it's important for this one to unfold it in the same pattern that the story unfolds it. So the thing starts out on a really hopeful note, right? Eve has been promised that she will bear offspring. One of them will crush the serpent. It hasn't come true yet, but hey, in the very beginning of the next chapter, she has two sons right off the bat. So things are looking up at first. And you can see the hope that at least Cain's birth gives to her, right? She gives birth to Cain and she says uh, in verse 1, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So she sees that the Lord is beginning to fulfill this promise. She is having kids. Things are looking up. And then there's also Abel. She gave birth to his brother Abel, but he's not really, you know, we just, he, he's the second born. You know, he's not the number one that we're really excited about. There's emphasis on Cain in that way. Emphasis also in that he's the firstborn. And the author intentionally puts emphasis on Cain over Abel by mentioning Abel's name exactly seven times and Cain's name exactly 14 times in this story. Multiples of seven are really important in Genesis. He did that on purpose to put an emphasis on Cain. So if you're reading this story for the first time, you're thinking, Cain, he's here. All right, the one who's going to come. Is he going to be the one that crushes the serpent? Is his son going to be the one that crushes the serpent? All right, it's on now. Well, things get interesting. Let's go back to verse 3. We'll resume there. So it came about uh, in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So you would think Cain is the favored one, right? He gets the emphasis. He's the firstborn. He appears to be the seed of the woman. So you would expect that if the Lord receives one offering and favors one over the other, he'd favor Cain's offering, right? He's the good guy here. He's the one that we're putting our hope in. That's not what the Lord does. He has regard for Abel's offering instead. Now, why would he prefer Abel's offering over Cain's? Well, the texts give us a really subtle clue right there. It says basically that Cain offered his, or sorry, Abel offered his best, and it doesn't say that of Cain, right? Of Abel, it says he offered the firstlings of his flock, and he offered their fat portions, the very best stuff he offers to the Lord. And of Cain, well, he just makes an offering. There you go. Here you are. You can have it. Uh, Now, if you give a gift to your spouse and you intentionally don't pick the good one of whatever it is, but you go cheap 
and, and it's clear that you went cheap. You don't put any effort into wrapping it. You don't even bother to put it in a gift bag. You don't put any effort in presentation. There is no card. There is no heartfelt words in the giving of it. It's just, here you go, your annual Christmas gift, and you slide it across the table. Your spouse is probably going to be offended, right? And why would your spouse be offended at that? Well, because they want your best. And people know when you are not giving them your best. We feel that way with gifts. Well, the Lord is like that too. He wants our best. He sees Abel offering his best and he sees Cain just kind of putting stuff forward. And he says, this offering smells good to me and this offering does not smell good to me. God wants our best. Now, Hebrews 11 will later say why Abel offered a better offering, and it's because he had faith. It will say, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. So faith is trusting in God's promises. So the progression here then is that Abel has faith in the Lord's promises. Therefore, he offers his absolute best to the Lord, and his offering is accepted. Cain, on the other hand, does not have the same faith in God's promises. So he offers a half-hearted offering and the Lord says, I'm not obligated to accept this and I don't want it. Now, if we look that in the eye, that changes a lot about how we worship. That means that the Lord wants our best and he only accepts it when we offer the best to him in faith. That means if we are singing Like Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, you know, like this kind of half-hearted, we don't really mean it singing on Sunday morning. Well, it may trace all the way back to the fact that parts of us are forgetting that Jesus really did rise from the dead and really is worthy of all of our worship. If our giving on Sunday morning shows that we aren't giving our best, we can trace that all the way back to a lack of trust in his promises and all the way forward to the Lord looking down and saying, you are not offering me your best. Come back and offer me your best. It means that when we do our work for the Lord, the way we put together the fall festival, the way we we put together worship services like that. He wants the best that we have to offer. He doesn't say, come forward and give me whatever you feel like giving. He says, give me your best. And that smell is sweet to my nose. Offer the best you have to the Lord. Now, this applies to some questions some of you have asked me recently. Uh, one of you asked recently, um, you know, if, if my legs are, they just get tired, if my knees get weak, is it okay for me to sit in the middle of the worship service? Is it okay, like everybody's standing, can I sit down just because I'm tired? Uh, I think that this answers that question for us because the Lord did not judge Abel by the size of his flock. And the Lord did not judge Cain uh, by the produce of his fields, right? In other words, he did not judge either of these men by how much they had to give. He didn't say, you don't have enough to come and give me what you've got. He judged them instead by whether they offered the best of what they have to give. And so there, is, there are some in this room who the best you can give to the Lord is to stand for two verses and say, 
that is all these legs have in them. I have given my best. And sit down and sing with a smile on your face, with worship offered your best to the Lord. And there you are giving your best. The Lord can receive that the same way he receives the widow's might. He looks at it and says, she put in all that she had. She gave her best. And at the same time, there are others of us who probably haven't given a second thought that it might be hard for somebody else to stand. We just stand and sing and don't even think about it. I hardly think about that at all when I am standing to sing. But that contempt us toward easy, half-hearted singing, not really paying attention to the prayers, not really putting our mind toward the scripture readings. We have so much to give, but we aren't giving the best that we have to offer. The Lord looks at that like he looks at Cain's offering and says, come back and offer me your best. It means the same thing to the mom who has to spend 85% of her energy keeping her kids from disrupting the service and has another 15% to offer to the Lord in worship, right? Moms, if that 15% is all that you've got left to offer to the Lord, just offer the very best of that 15%. The Lord hears it when we offer our best to him. But if you've got all your attention to give and you won't give it, the Lord says, come back and offer to me your best. So there's the principle to offer the best of what we've got, whether it's small or whether it is big. Now, the thought of God not accepting your gift because you didn't offer your best, that might upset you a little bit. And the reason I know that might upset you is because it upset Cain. That's what happens to him, right? Uh, But the Lord, like a good father, goes after Cain. He doesn't say, You didn't offer me your best. Get out and don't come back. That's what we almost expect him to do. That's not what he does. He's like a good dad and he goes and asks questions with the aim of restoring him and bringing him back. We can see him do this in verses six and seven. Look there with me if you would. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. You can see the Lord's desire there, don't you? He wants Cain to do right. He wants those who don't offer acceptable worship to come back and to offer the best that they have. He doesn't want you to go away and never come back. He doesn't want to forsake you. And then he gives the warning that takes us behind the scenes and shows us this unseen war that I have been talking about. He says, sin is at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. He's the apparent heir, right? The firstborn of the woman. He's the one that it appears the defeat of the serpent will come through. And so Satan is after him. Sin is crouching at his door, ready to pounce. And if sin can master Cain... Well, then all we have to do is find some way to deal with Abel, and then there will be no seed of the woman left, and no one will be able to crush the serpent. Can you see the serpent's strategy here? He's trying to take out all of the threats that he sees. One of these two children is going to rise up to crush me. It's probably this firstborn, so I'm going after this firstborn. He knows what he is doing, and he is crafty. So this temptation that Cain is dealing with is really part of Satan's supernatural scheme going on unseen behind the scenes. For Cain, it's all about his feelings. He's angry, probably feels depressed, his face has fallen over what's going on. But for Satan, so much more is on the line. 
What Satan is doing here is something he will continue to do throughout the Bible, right? The war then is between the descendants of the woman and the descendants of the serpent. But it's not some like fantastic, like the serpent has serpent dragon babies and the woman has woman warrior babies and they clash in a summer blockbuster. Like I would go see that movie, but that's not what the serpent does. Instead, he is much more slithery. He sneaks into the woman's line and tries to turn God's people against him instead. And you'll see this pattern pop up all throughout scripture. He sows the weeds right along the wheat crops. He doesn't do it in a separate field, but he comes right along so things just get messy and the people of God and the people of the serpent are just all intertwined and you can't even tell who is who when you read the Bible sometimes. His oldest trick is turning the people of God away from God. It's what he did to Adam and Eve and it's what he's trying to do to Cain right now. Uh, Satan loves to entice people to do his work for him. Ephesians 2 says that if you were a Christian, you used to be following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is working through so many to accomplish his ends. And it says of them, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh. So there we were just doing what our bodies wanted to do, doing what we felt like. We had no idea that a war was going on and Satan was working through us to accomplish his ends. And what is more, it is still true for you, even if you follow Jesus today. First Peter says words that echo these words in Eden. Now, the Lord said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. You must master it. Listen to how this is echoed in the book of First Peter. He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour but resist him firm in your faith. When he tempts you as he tempted Cain with, who knows, feelings of bitterness or some form of impurity or who knows what it is, he is crouched up, ready to pounce on you the same way he was with Cain. He is up to so much more than you think. And it is about so much more than what you are feeling right then. Trying to turn the people of God away from God so they can't accomplish what God has purposed for them. Uh, he is doing the same thing to us and to our brothers and sisters all over the world. And so the word from the Lord is the same as it was to Cain, to us, resist him. Don't take part in his schemes. Don't let the passions of the flesh turn you away from doing the Lord's work. The next verse is where it gets tragic. Uh, despite God correcting him, uh, despite God giving him the words of life, Cain doesn't just give in to the temptation. He falls big time. Let's read what he does in verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. You need to know that in ancient laws, including in Israel's law, a crime committed in the field was premeditated. And it makes sense. You wait until you and this person are way out in the field and they can't cry for help and then you attack him. 
Well, you meant to do it and you were waiting for the right opportunity. Uh, we can read through that that Cain was looking for the right time. And depending on how you he- render the Hebrew, it may be Cain said to Abel, his brother, let's go in the field and then rose up and killed him. This was a premeditated attack all over the fact that the Lord accepted Abel's offering and did not accept Cain. Now, I told you before, Cain's name is mentioned 14 times in the story, Abel's seven times. Another word that is exactly seven times in the story is the word brother to bring emphasis to this relationship. Cain didn't just commit murder over worship. He murdered his brother because the Lord accepted his brother's offerings over his. And as big as that is, there are eternal matters here. The serpent has won. One of these two sons should have risen up and either borne the one who defeats the serpent or defeated him himself. But now Cain has been mastered by sin, so it won't be Cain. And Abel is dead. In one move, the serpent appears to have thwarted God's plan and takes out both lines of the woman right there. And God's promise appears to have failed. Now I'm gonna leave that there because the story leaves it there and circles back to it later. Uh, Instead, uh, what you need to know now is that this progression that we just saw with Cain uh, is actually the first in a pattern of many people like him. I call them the sons of Cain throughout the scripture. It is one of Satan's favorite tricks, uh, just like I said before, but a little more developed now, to stir up not just anybody, but religious people who appear to be God's people into hating, persecuting, and even murdering the people of God. And that theme is traced throughout the whole Bible. He likes to attack from the outside, but he really likes to turn those that appear to be God's people against God's people. He loves to make a turncoat. That is why later in the books of Kings, the sons of David, the kings, who you think would be the good guys, wind up persecuting and killing the prophets who are proclaiming the word of God. Uh, That is why in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the most righteous religious people of the day, are the ones that rise up and murder him. And Jesus even predicts this, and he traces the line himself in Matthew 23. I'm going to read to you some of Jesus' own words. He says to those very people, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that upon you may fall all the guilt of the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Whether it's over Cain and Abel's offerings to God or whether it's Zechariah's murder right there in the temple, the theme of worship comes up over and over again, over worship. People wind up killing the people of God. And what's more, the reason that they do it is because our deeds are righteous and their deeds are wicked, stirred up in this way. First John says it really plainly. He says, we should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The sons of Cain are alive and well still this day. Satan would love to turn any one of us into them. 
resenting, hunting, and persecuting the righteous. There is war going around all around us. Now, those passages tell you what's going on on the stage in the war. There's another passage that tells you what's going on behind the scenes in the war as well. And I'm going to read that to you from Revelation 12. So, so we just read what's happening here in the world that we can see. There are things happening unseen that we do not know about, but we can read about in Revelation. Uh, now consider this idea of the woman and the serpent and their seeds and all this, and I'll read to you from Revelation 12. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. So this theme of the woman and the serpent, now it's a woman giving birth to the promised one and a dragon. The whole thing is developed more. And his tail swept away a third of the stars from heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. He's going after that seed. He wants to stop it because he knows this one is going to crush him. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. I'm gonna skip down to verse 13 if you're following with me. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept up with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon had poured out of his mouth. And here's where we get to where we are today. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep his commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. He lost the battle with the woman. She brought forth the chosen one. His name was Jesus. He was born. He lived. He died. He rules. He reigns. Calls us all to follow him. The serpent loses. And in rage, he says, well, if I can't get her and the promised seed, I'll go after the rest of them. And that brings us to where we are today. With our eyes, we can see the sons of Cain going after the sons of Abel. Behind the scenes, what I just read is what is happening. This serpent is enraged. He has lost, raising up some religious people, some non-religious people today to go after God's people because he has lost. Now, do you see why I say there is an unseen war going on on every page of the Bible and going on in every moment of your life? When you suffer directly because of your faith, I mean, if you could trace your suffering, this is happening because of my faith in Jesus. Uh, this is why you're living as a son of Abel. 
When you are tempted to turn away from God's ways, Satan is treating you as if you could potentially be a son of Cain. So in some ways we can identify with Cain, to whom the Lord says sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you, master it. And in other ways we can identify with Abel, seeing the world rally together against us in this ways. So much more than your feelings are at stake. Well, let's move on in the story. Uh, often when the sons of Cain wage their war, they show great hard-heartedness in what they do. And we will see that in Cain here. Remember, the Lord tends to go and confront Cain and he's going to do it again. Even though Cain has murdered his brother, he, he's not going in with the desire to forsake him and send him away. Instead, he starts asking him a question that gives Cain the opportunity to confess and say, I have murdered my brother, I have, have mercy on me, take me back. And in verse nine, we see what happens. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And look at Cain's heart and his response. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? There will be no turning this one back. He's not coming to the Lord's ways. And so the Lord banishes him. He does not want to do that to those who forsake his ways. Even those who murder their own brothers forsaking the Lord's ways, he doesn't want to send them out. He'd rather ask the questions and pull them back. But if we persist in our hard-heartedness, he will say, all right, away you go. And here's what he says in verse 10. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I'll be hidden and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And so the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The earth, which had drunk Abel's blood, would now take Abel's side, and it would harass Cain for the rest of his days. Now, Adam and Eve sin against the Lord, but they are not cursed directly. The ground is cursed. Eve is not even close to cursed. Cain is cursed. And there's only one other character so far that's been cursed, and that's the serpent. And so in those words, we have the plot twist confirmed. Cain is the seed of the serpent. You don't get better plot twists than that written by people. People don't write this well. Cain complains that his punishment is more than he can bear. He's still hard-hearted. He's complaining now about the punishment that he's given. And the Lord is still merciful toward him. He says, okay, I'll give you a sign and I will protect you. His heart doesn't want to destroy Cain. It's Cain's hard-heartedness that is doing this. Uh, but then in continued hard-heartedness, part of the punishment is he's supposed to be a wanderer and a vagrant all over the earth. First thing he does is he goes and build a settlement, right? I'm planting down here and I'm not going to wander anymore. Still, even resisting the Lord's words to him. 
And what we're gonna see next is we're gonna see Cain's line. We'll see this seed of the serpent begin to develop. Uh, and you may, be, you may have always wondered, why are there genealogies in the Bible? Like, why, why does the Bible spend so much time, this person is the son of this person, the son of this person? Well, what it's doing is it is tracing the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So we get a genealogy next, and it traces the seed of the serpent through Cain. And the picture we get is a picture of what we would call the world. Uh, uh, the world living without God and prospering without God. It's very much like the world around us. I think it'll sound familiar. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and she gave birth to Enoch and he built a city and he called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erad and Erad became the father of Mahujael and Mahujael became the father of Methusael and Methusael became the father of Lamech. And Lamech took himself two wives and the name of the one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jubal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, a forger of all implements and bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Nayama. Nayama means lovely. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So you can see the self-reliance here, first of all. Rather than wondering, as he was sentenced to do, he tries to build himself a city. And he names it Enoch after his son, which means to initiate, right? So it's got this sense of like a fresh start. Here we are out here, but we're going to start over. We're going to start something new. We're going to build this city together. And they start building the city together. Now, the word for city can mean, you know, encampment or settlement or city. Not a lot of people then. It's probably more like what we would think of as an encampment. But they are building it. And it is such a wonderful picture of human flourishing for the most part. Uh, the picture it gives to godless humanity is compelling, and it sounds like the cities of today. There are great farming developments there, awesome cultural developments. They invent music there. There were songs before, but no instruments. Now they've got instruments, and there's technological advancement. The Iron Age and the Bronze Age just happened right there under the hands of this one guy. And great beauty, the name of Lamech's daughter, Le uh, Naama, means lovely and beautiful. Uh, and... There's terrible, frightening violence. In Jubal's livestock, we see modern farming. In uh, Jubal's musical pro progression, we see all the wonders of today's music. In Tubal Cain's forgery of brass and iron, we see advancements like satellites and mobile phones today. In Nayama, we see cosmopolitan glamour. Now, the point here is that left to our own devices and self-reliance, we can build some pretty awesome stuff. Uh, it sounds crazy to say this, but we don't need the nearness of the Lord to build incredible fleeting things ourselves. You can build great movements, awesome cities, incredible technologies without the presence of the Lord near you. But, well, the city would have been an incredible place to visit in the daytime, but it would have been frightening at night. I would not have wanted to go anywhere near that place when the sun goes down. Lamech turns the songs into a taunt to his wives. 
telling them to basically get in line because he is a violent man. He kills children who smack him. He takes vengeance himself. And there must have been many like him there. The cities we build can be incredible in the same way and they can be scary to walk around in at night. This is what happens when we build incredible things ourselves without relying on the Lord. He put in our DNA the image of God. We can make awesome stuff, but it's always fleeting and it always has a dark side. And even scarier than that, what happened to this city? Some of you can trace ahead and know what's gonna happen. There's about as many generations here in this genealogy as there will be in the other one until we get to Noah. And I think most of you know what happens in Noah's day. You can connect the dots and presume that perhaps this was the last generation before the great flood. Being merry, making music, forging bronze and iron, all sorts of wonderful things going on, marrying and given in marriage and not knowing that the waters are coming down to them. And that's a theme we won't go into today, but it will be picked up in Babel and in Babylon. The great cities we build, they always fall. So things look pretty bad. The one who was supposed to crush the serpent has built himself a self-reliant, sin-dominated kingdom, and the backup is dead. So you gotta wonder at this point, is godless humanity gonna be forever? Is that, is that the last word that we just progress further and further in wickedness? Well, let's look at verse 25 and see how the story ends. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and she named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring, another seed, literally, in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. God always keeps his promises. He's promised a descendant of this woman is going to come and crush the serpent. And to just kind of spoil the rest of the Old Testament, the whole thing is basically one big story about Satan's attempts to squish out this chosen seed. And it always looks like it's going to work. And at the last second, God just says every time, I've got this, I've got it. Every time the story arcs look often the same and we can't get enough. Usually it looks like Satan's plan is going to work and God comes through at the last minute. And Eve is recognizing this. She called Cain just a man child. She calls Seth a seed using the same word that God said in the promise. She's catching the link here. And not only that, but she seemed to think beforehand Cain was the one. And now she says, God's appointed me a seed in the place of Abel. She, she understands now that Cain wasn't the one. She sees what God is up to behind the scenes. She sees the battle and she trusts in the gods who will keep his promises. And what's more, then Seth has a son and so we've not lost the great war. And then I'll give you one more thing. We see what separates the godless line of Cain from the holy line of Seth. What separates God's people from the world today? And it's this last sentence. This is, by the way, the 70th time a name of God is mentioned in Genesis. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain's line has no mention of God. 
Seth's line has no mention of great culture and wonderful accomplishments. The world is often marked by how savvy they are, what they can get away with. And man, we struggle to turn a microphone on sometimes. We struggle to get the screens looking good. We don't have the cultural accomplishments here. We struggle to look good on Sunday morning. They've got J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg doing their stuff. How do we compete with that? What are we going to do? Well, they've got lots of tricks and we've only got one trick. We call upon the name of the Lord, and that makes all of the difference. So there's the final difference. We call upon his name. The name of that Lord is Jesus. And now the time comes, we see the two sides so evenly divided. We see that there is not a middle ground. We cannot stand on the middle ground. And so if you ask the question today, how can I be on the right side of this? How can I not do Satan's work, but do the Lord's work and find salvation in his promises at the end? In those last words, you see the answer. We call upon the name of the Lord. It is that simple. His name is Jesus. He died to pay for our sins. He rose to conquer death. And he bids to you, come and follow me. Call upon my name for salvation. Let's pray.